point, these prisons and mental institutions were essentially one, and the same could be said for the orphanages. Many of these asylums were also orphan homes. They have different names for them, sometimes they call it orphan asylums, foundling hospitals, and oddfellow homes. This is where the story gets even deeper. These homes were funded and owned by a Masonic lodge known as the Oddfellows. These people play a major role in the reset program during the early 1800s and it was done under the name of philanthropy, but if you look at some of their symbols and the people behind this, we can begin to suspect that maybe their intentions weren't so benign. Interestingly, this was brought up when we looked into Spring Grove in Maryland. Many of these hospitals were funded by this organization. The Independent Order of Oddfellows, IOOF, is a non-political and non-sectarian international fraternal order of odd fellowship. It was founded in 1819 by Thomas Wilde in Baltimore, Maryland, United States, but it evolved from the Order of Odd Fellows founded in England during the 1700s. I don't know, that just kind of seems weird to me, but these people and their whole mission was to educate the orphans. Hello and welcome back. This is Waking Up With Mel, episode 52. Today we are going to talk about the orphan trains, which are going to lead us, as you imagined, down many, many roads. So we're going to go ahead and start with what we heard. The odd fellows. Who are these fellows? You see, when I started this journey with MK Ultra, I was under the assumption that our government was founded decently and then around the 1940s, after World War II, we went haywire off the walls, started doing experiments on our own people. And, um, you know, MK Ultra, my last couple podcasts, I really went deep into all the different projects they did on people. Um, most of them had no clue. Some of them did, but most of them did not. Um, I believe Char Charles Manson was part of these projects. I believe tons of prisoners are part of these projects, especially now. Uh, as I decided to figure out where did they get all these orphans to do all these experiments on, my world just exploded last week. I have not been able to put down this research. I have not been able to stop researching and I can't find an end to the trail. I am back in the 1700s right now and I'm still trying to connect the dots of who was behind all this. But again, we're seeing a common thread. The Rothschild's name is definitely behind some of this. But there's more names and more people. So I think the best way to not go all over the place with this orphan train movement is to first understand back then the family unit was very, very strong. And it was very unlikely to have thousands and thousands and thousands of, of orphans. Um so the fact that they were even able to do this shows me that human trafficking is nothing new under the sun. I This is even reminding me of World War II when they separated the Jewish mothers and children and they show it in the movies and all that. That was the second time around, guys. They did these orphan trains for a hundred years from the 1800s to the 1900s they did these 70 some say 75 years the timeline i'm finding is a little skewed as it is with everything but it's basically starting in 1820 ending in around 1920 and these kids are being trafficked across every single state in the united states except for one and i have the map of that so we'll get there too but just think okay 
this is what they would tell parents. Let's say your husband dies, your widow, you're hard, you know, hard up for cash. You're having a hard time feeding your kids. Maybe you have three of them and you go to this new odd fellow place that says, oh, we're here to help our community and help you. Oh, we can help your kids for a little while while you get on your feet. So next thing you know, you go to get your kids back and they hand you a bill and they say, hey, lady, you, you can get your kids back. We've already shipped them across the country, but uh, you got to pay us back for that, for all the care we gave them and for the care of the foster. Here's your bill. As soon as you pay that, you can get your kids back. What? And they call them, themselves the first welfare system. I got, I got, uh, I can't even believe this has happened, but it has. And we're here. And honestly, these companies are still running today. The Oddfellows are all over America today. I just looked in New Mexico and Boise, Idaho, the two places I'm from. There's 40-something in Boise, 20-something in New Mexico. But they don't put Oddfellows like bluntly in your face. They put I-O-O-F. So a lot of people are like, what's that mean? It's just, it's, it's crazy. But these guys, they're, they're here to help. Well, let me tell you. And let's talk about how they've helped. So they date all the way back to 1806. That was their first lodge established. Um, it was called the Shakespeare Number no. 1, New York City, December 26, 1806. So that's how long these secret societies have been hanging around. Uh, the five odd fellows composing of the lodge were loyal, independent order, and moving spirits were Solomon Chambers and his son, J.C. English, mechanics from South London. The founders were three boat builders, a comedian, and a vocalist, a group befitting the name Oddfellows. Indeed, the lodge was self-instituted, a common practice in those times. Their first candidate was a retired actor who was the keeper of the tavern where they met. Accounts state that the lodge meetings were accompanied by merry-making and mirth. I don't know what that means. And the wares of the tavern were freely indulged in. I also want to state before I continue on that I will put the links to everything, but right now I am reading from the actual oddfellows.org forward slash history. Okay. This is from them themselves. Not, not me making up anything because I've noticed going down this orphan train road, there's some conspiracy theories that wrap around Tataria, which I could kind of get my head around, but I think it's much bigger than just destroying Tataria. And I don't think it was just mud floods. I think it was more intentional. Um, than a lot of these conspiracies, quote unquote, like to talk about. Anyways, um, let's get back to the odd fellows. The early members, they were very jealous. I always say jealous. I meant zealous workers and other lodges were soon organized in 1809, 18 guys. Oh, nine. The role of membership in six New York city lodges comprised 36 prominent citizens and businessmen, as well as many other of less influence. Shakespeare Lodge was dissolved in 1813 due to poor attendance brought on by the controversy over the War of 1812. The other lodges, of which little is known, existed briefly until 1816. In 1818, Shakespeare's Lodge in New York was reinstituted in the Red Cow Tavern, operated by a former member who had in his keeping the books and papers from the former lodge. Are we surprised? I'm not. Um, so you're going to hear this name a lot. He is said to start the first Oddfellows here in America. And 
it said that he had a Brit- British accent. People didn't like the Brits, so he wanted to, you know, find his odd fellows. His name is Thomas Wildly, and that's spelled out Wildly, W-I-L-D-E-Y. Uh, he says he established the Washington Lodge Number 1 of Baltimore, and it was organized April 26, uh, 1819. So there was already lodges in New York going on when the homeboy comes over in 1819 after the war with the Brits. And under this leadership, he's recognized as the founder of the Odd Fellowship. So you'll hear that. Even though there was already lodges in place way before he came. So Thomas was born in London. And I also want to pause here that these lodges, they started in london so let's go back to the 1700s shall we and talk about where these odd fellows even came from and why this guy probably felt okay to come to america being how he already had other lodges already in place in america again i'm reading from the oddfellows.org history and this says the exact date of the first founding odd fellowship is lost in the fogs of antiquity I'm not going to read line by line because we got a lot to talk about today, but basically it's saying that they trace it back to the medieval trade guilds of the 12th and 13th century. Uh, Others estimate that it existed before 1650. What is clear, there was a number of odd fellow groups in England in the 1700s. So now we're back to the 1700s. So if you haven't heard the conspiracy theory about Tartaria, Tartaria is said to be this land kind of up on top of um, Russia that connects with Asia, Mongolia. It was kind of like all these different cultures that got along. It said that they had, you know, free electricity. That's where Tesla supposedly stole all these. Supposedly these guys stole everything from this land, Tartaria. But I beg to differ because if you go across the United States, across England, across the world, basically, you're going to see these extraordinary um buildings that we have not since made since then or before then so obviously something awesome was going on and they're saying that a lot of these buildings were made and designed for healing for natural healing like like frequency healing if you don't know anything about that it's pretty amazing um you know our bodies are designed to be healed with everything god gave us here on earth and we have been bombarded and bombarded by all these satanic people and all these odd fellow agendas and all these, you know, people that are hiding in these secret societies. If they, if they were so good, why do they have to be so secret? Why can't, why is it so hard to find the names of these 29 people that backed all these insane asylums and everything? So the story continues on that basically these um, civilizations are invaded and taken over probably by groups like this. And destroyed much like the maui fires it reminds me of maui all the time like the fire of 1900 that destroyed all this and so they take over cities with fire rebuild it the way they want and what they did is they basically took these children from these happy um, utopia and like environments and split them from their parents if the parents didn't get in line and do what they wanted they put them in these insane asylums and the pictures are just horrific to see of these you know 1900 quote unquote how come all of a sudden there's so many people insane in the 1900s no one insane you know insane from like 1950 
not as many. I mean, there still is, of course. But the, I see so many people right now on the street of Albuquerque that should be in an insane asylum, but there's none that for them to go to. So why do they have so many? And, and people were forced to go there. If you drank liquor, you could go there because, you know, they banned alcohol for a while, guys. Um, I mean, the, the laws or rules they made, they could take basically anybody they wanted there. It was said in New York City when these orphan trains were in full effect that parents told their children because let me let me throw this number out there real quick. Out of 100% of these orphans that were trafficked across our globe and across the United States and all over Canada, I mean, all over the place, guess how many were actual orphans? A quarter of them. So you got a dollar, uh, one quarter of those kids, one quarter of that dollar is, I'm trying to get the math here for you guys to see, to picture that they were actually actual orphans. Everyone else had a living relative or parent. Some of them had two parents. They were literally trafficked and their their parents had nothing, nothing they could do about it because you know who was in control? The secret societies. You know who's still in control? The secret societies. You know what we need to wake up to? <laughs> that foster care started as a trafficking system and it still to this day is. If you haven't heard my episodes about that, I've talked about that. There's one all about how Kamala Harris, the vice president of you, the supposed vice president of the United States is in on it in California when she was in politics. All these politicians, everything that we've ever dealt with, we have been slaves, absolute slaves. Our children have been trafficked. It's been so crazy, and it's been all the way back since the 1700s. So that's the whole theory is that they took these places that were um, basically places to heal and then they took them, turned around, made them in Salem, took the buildings and made them insane asylums and locked them up in places that used to be their healing places. Now, now that I said that, I'm going to read you a actual real document that I found on the CIA website because I love reading unclassified CIA documents. I could spend 10 hours a day doing that. It's ridiculous. Okay, so the only point of me reading this is just to let people know that there, this destruction was happening in December of 1917. This this is just part of a proclamation that was read by the Bolsheviks. And basically they were tricking these people because they needed more people on their side. So they're like, hey, we're going to do this for you. And, but they weren't really telling the truth. And the, the release document was released from the CIA August 24th, 1999. Um, and the title of this document is national culture development under communism and it just starts with muslims of russia tartars of volga and the crimea i don't know all these different cultures uh k-i-r-g-h-i-z and the sarts of siberia the turkish ten the turks and the tarts of trans t-r-a-n-s-c-a-u-c-a-s-i-a Transu-Asia, Transu-Asia. So basically, I feel like these are all the people that they talk about when they talk about Tartaria. Um, and it, it continues on with more of um, these types of people. So it says the Chekins and mountain people of Kaushus, K-A-U-C-A-S-U-S, and all you whose mosques and prayer houses have been destroyed whose beliefs and customs have been trampled upon by the Tsars and the oppressors of Russia. Henceforth, your beliefs and your customs, your, natu your national and culture in 
cultural instructions and institutions are forever free and inviolate. inviolate. Organize your national life in complete freedom. This is your right. So they're telling him, you know, we're here to help you. We understand this happened to you guys. We're here. And, and it wasn't true. So they already were down and out. And then apparently it sounds like they got more down and out. But meanwhile, while all this is going on over there in Russia with Tartaria, we have our own little program going here in the United States. And a lot of people have done uh, history pictures and shown these huge buildings um, with no people in the streets or these. So something happened. There was, they call it a great reset. You know how they're trying to do it now? They did it before. Some There was some type of culture that was on it. And then right around the 1900s, we started taking over it all, taking their technology, claiming it as, as our own, you know, all of a sudden we have airplanes that we're inventing and all these things and rewriting history and teaching it the way they want it taught. And nothing new has really changed since then. Besides, we have a little more compassion for orphans. And when I say a little, it's a little because a lot of people are still so fast asleep to the human trafficking within our own government. So that's all I really am going to say about Tartaria. As far as I'm concerned, I do think kids were probably trafficked from there, but they're probably trafficked from all across the world because I I see Paris, uh, kids trafficked from there, from England, uh, you know, all over the place. So to say they came from just Tartaria, I don't think it's true, but do, do I think they were trying to break these kids? Yeah, because when they were shipped off on these orphan trains, let's talk about that. So in order to traffic children across the globe using trains, what do you need? Money. <laughs> the funny thing is if they're going to use all these this money to traffic these children across the globe to do labor, as we will see, um, why wouldn't they just give that money to the par- parents so they could actually raise their kids if they really gave two pennies about them? So this orphan train movement, it was very well supervised and they called it a welfare program because there wasn't a welfare system back then. Um, They transported children all over, like I said, and I actually have a map. So let's talk about where these kids went. Okay, so Washington received 231, Oregon received 90, California 168, Nevada 59, Idaho got 52, Utah got 31, Arizona didn't take any of these orphans. New Mexico, we took one. Colorado had 1,563. Uh, Ever wonder why weird stuff goes on in Colorado? Because remember, all these kids were programmed. Not all of them. Most of them. A lot of them. Um, And try not to blanket statement anything, but just think of the reprogramming these kids went through. Separation from the parents. Their names taken away. New names given to them. Just much like a dog at a pound. Uh, Wyoming got 19, Montana got 83. Moving more Midwest, we got North Dakota, 975, South Dakota, 43. Nebraska took in 3,442. Colorado, we already talked about you. Um, Kansas took in 4,150. You know why they went to these little towns? Because they needed help on the farms and they these people who were the backers behind all these orphanages were also what they call philanthropists so they're really rich dudes like bill gates and they owned uh steel we'll get into these guys steel companies they owned railroad railroad companies these kids were their uh basic employees to do free labor for them 
So they had to ship them across the globe, probably put them in the hands of kids, people they needed them in. Uh, we got Oklahoma, 95, Texas. They took way less than these farm towns. 1,327. Minnesota took 3,258. Iowa got a big chunk of them, 6,675. Um, Missouri, they got 4,150. Arkansas got 95. Uh, Louisiana, 79. Mississippi, 240. And then we're getting more East Coast, so it just starts to spread out. But the most is in New York, 33,053 kids trafficked to New York. So what the story, if you hear like the PBS orphan train story, it's a bunch of garbage or the history channel, the garbage they want to feed you. Um, they try to say, you know, this was the compassion project and these poor kids, they were living on the slums of the streets of New York and we had to help them. So we just rounded them all up and brought them to orphanages and shipped them all across the country for free. And if their parents wanted them, they had to pay our bill. I mean, they don't tell you that part, of course. And then they have a few uh, riders that were on the trains that have like, um, you know, a couple good stories or, you know, most of them aren't good. Most of them are terrible. Um and and just the fact that these organizations are still open and and things are still happening and they're still having uh, uh to this day uh, cases against them for child abuse is just beyond me like i cannot believe how long all these organizations have stayed afloat it just blows my mind so there was one story I heard when I was listening to all the different stories of a girl who lived in New York and she's like, Oh yeah, I remember the orphan trains came through. We go pick some up for, for, to work on our farm. Those lucky kids. <laughs> like that's how they looked at these kids. It sounds like when they got dropped off on these train tracks at, at whatever state, let's say they're in the orphanage. They say, Hey kids, you're going on a train ride. These kids were from two to 14. Okay. They had an eight and then they had baby trains because the babies went fast sickos and they called these mercy trains so the kids would get off they'd get on the plank you know at the arriving town and all the townspeople would show up some of them just to be like what's going on other ones because they really wanted ones and other ones probably because they're sent by their odd fellow groups and they picked their kids and the ones that were left felt ashamed because they weren't picked how terrible you're taken from your family your mom and dad's probably in a mental institution wrapped you know, can't ever see them again, or they can't pay to get you out of this trafficking ring you're in, then you get trafficked and you don't get picked. So you feel even worse about yourself. I can't even imagine. No wonder it was so sad and depressing back then. First, and let me throw this out there. You know, when these stopped, when the Great Depression started, don't you think that's when they should have started if it was really to help people? <laughs> these people are sick. I'm going to continue reading uh, this document. This one's from the Wikipedia. I don't trust hardly anything they say, but they do give you places to start researching. And that's what I usually do with this information. They also cite a lot of the stuff that they say. So you can go to these papers or documents that they're citing and read them as well. I would not take this as uh, this is like the History Channel. They put it in and take out whatever they feel like when people start catching on. But fortunately, a lot of the stuff... Uh, leads down roads that tie a lot of dots, in my opinion. Okay, so the co-founders of these orphan trains, which we will talk about in just a second, 
they claim that all these kids, like I said, were orphaned, abandoned, or abused, or homeless, but this was not true. They Most of the children were of new immigrants, and the children of poor and destitute families living in these cities. Uh, critics of the program included an ineffective screening of caretakers, insufficient follow-ups on placements, and that many children were used strictly as slave farm labor, which is very true. Three charitable institutions. Okay, and we're going to get into these now. The Children's Village, again, still around, founded in 1851 by 24 philanthropists. Now, I tried to find who these 24 people might have been because for the life of me, you can't find it. So I went and I dug and I'm like, okay, how are we going to find at least some ties possibly? The reason I care so much who these 24 philanthropists are is because they are the ones who are backing these orphan trains. They're the ones taking these children away from their parents and shipping them across the globe basically to do free labor for their corporations. One of the articles I came across that I thought was super interesting, and I'm going to share it with you now, is from the Smithsonian, and it's called The Tycoons. How Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, Jay Gould, and J.P. Morgan invented the American super economy. And this was by Charles R. Morris. And curious enough, all these subjects that he's writing about were born in around the same time in 1830s. And they all died in the middle 1900s. I find that very coincidental. Also, another character that pops up a lot is Vanderbilt. Wasn't expecting to hear Mark Twain, but his name is popping up around this time. Very influential in this era. As a matter of fact, Mark Twain, or Twain, whatever you want to call him, he coined this term Gilded Age. And this is a period in the United States history, a term coined, coined by Mark Twain and used by some historians to refer roughly to a period between 1877 and 1900, which is sandwiched between, listen to this, the Reconstruction Era. What are they reconstructing exactly? Because the buildings that they're taking over are absolutely beautiful and they've never made them again. And so they're sandwiched between this era where they're reconstructing, I believe, coming into the old world, new world type thing and calling it what they call the progressive era. And this is a time of growth, rapid growth in North America and Western United States. And, you know, this is when they started doing all the uh, what I think are race wars and all the things against each other, um, you know, women's rights and all. And yes, we needed certain things. All of these, I want to say this right here and right now, all these agencies do have good parts that they accomplished throughout the years, like kids needed help, some of them, but a lot of them overstep, overreach, or hide under the guise of this one good thing they do, and then they do thousands of horrible things. So I don't know, I'm, the way I'm looking at everything is we don't we don't need the rich dictating how the poor should live and where we should go and how we should go and if we should be able to live with our parents. I don't think that's okay and I, I'll never will. I never will. I found an interesting article um, called Andrew Carnegie, The Richest Man in the World, and it's called The Gilded Age. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right because I've never even heard of this age, did not learn about this in school. The funny thing about me is I hated history 
when I was in school, maybe because I knew it was a bunch of lies. But now that I have the internet and I can really research and look up things, I love history and I can't get enough of it. Um, But what this article says is, what is the chief end to a man to get rich? In what way? Question mark. Dishonesty, if we can. Honesty, if we must. Mark Twain, 1871. Then they have a black and white photo here of Andrew Carnegie in 1910 from the Library of Congress. And it says, and I quote, during the Gilded Age, every man was a potential Andrew Carnegie. Now, let me stop right here. Now I'm unquoting. Andrew Carnegie supposedly was a self-made millionaire. They always have these stories. Oh, he came to America poor and he made it. But all you other poor bastards didn't. And now your kids are on orphan trains working for Andrew. Rock on. Try to figure it out. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You know why? You know how he got rich off all of our backs and our kids' backs. That's how. I have no respect for this dude. And Americans, okay, so every man was a potential to be Andrew, and Americans who achieved wealth celebrated it as never before, period. In New York, the opera, the theater, the lavish parties consumed the ruling class, leisure hours, Sherry's restaurant hosted formal horseback dinners for New York's riding club. Miss Stuvant's fish once threw a dinner party to honor her dog, who arrived sporting a $15,000 diamond collar. While the rich wore diamonds, many wore rags. In 1890, 11 million of the nation's 12 million families earned less than $1,200 per year. Of this group, the average annual income was $380, well below the poverty line. Rural Americans and new immigrants crowded the urban areas. And you know what could have happened right then? These people could have took their $15,000 dog collars and gave it to these people who are making less than that in a year to to raise their families. But no, you know what they did instead? They took their $15,000 dog collars, walked over to the bank, got more money because they own the banks and funded these little orphanages where they then took these in these immigrants children and traffic them across the country pisses me off and it should you too this article it goes on to read and i'm going to skip some spots but it says americans had sewing machines phonographs skyscrapers and even electric lights yet most people labored in the shadow of poverty as we can see something major has happened between the 16 1700s we have these rich fellows odd fellows coming along creating these orphanages. We have 24 of the richest men um, creating this one that we're going to now talk about in length or not in length, but a little more detail. And it's called the Children's Village. And as I said, it was founded in 1851 by these 24 unknown rich dudes. And um, this society is still in in, uh, use. It's still being used. And it's not only being used, it's now global as far as I can tell. If you go to their website, childrensvillage.org, you can go to their history and it says right here, New York City recognized the need for care for orphans as early as 1653, but the government never did enough for the needy. Fortunately, fortunately, there's always some citizens like the Rockefellers. It doesn't say that, but it says, fortunately, there's always citizens who gave their money, time, and help. And by the 1900s, there were dozens of new institutions, settlement houses, 
charity organizations, and religious groups who tried to fill in the gaps. Um, it says, it continues on how they're now a private institution like the Children's Village have continued the tradition to establish the 19th century uh, to provide the most vulnerable among us. The problem still exists, blah, blah, blah. But let's go to a recent lawsuit against this Children's Village. And a few articles here, um, they're dated just recently, October 21st, 2020, there's one. Um, there's another one that says Hill versus Children's Village, uh, 196, looks like a subpoena. Um, that one looks like it's more for discrimination. A number of people suing Children's Village for alleged sex crimes. Um, lawsuit pile up against Westchester Youth Home. The Children's Village has made headlines in the papers as recent victims speak out against the abuse they suffered. Um, I guess I'll just click on this one. This is dated... November 4th, 2020. Um, and it says that headline I just read you and the date I just told you. And it says the children's village has made headlines in the papers recently as victims speak out against the abuse they suffered. 12 plaintiffs have come forward so far and Hatch and Rose LLP is proud to represent two of these victims. No one should have their innocence stolen from them as children. Well, guess what people, the, the children's village has done it since the founding. Um, and let's go talk a little bit more about the founding of this village they call for children. Formerly, the New York Juvenile Asylum is a private nonprofit residential treatment facility and school for troubled children. It was founded in 1851, and here it says 24 New York citizens. Um, other articles from the actual children's village says the 40, the 40 some. So, you know, you pick. I don't care. Whoever it was, they were 24 rich people that could have spent their money doing better things for children, in my opinion, besides shipping them in orphan trains. Uh, they were concerned about the growing numbers of street children in New York. The necessity for an institution was first proposed by the Association for Approving Condition of the Poor, which helped get, get it started. Hundreds of homeless runaway children were present of the streets in New York. And this is their purpose. This is what they told people why they needed it. Because they had hundreds of homeless runaway children. Um, many of them were arrested every year as part of a mission. And that's another thing. They tried to make these kids out as they were bad kids. One little girl in one of her testimonies I was reading said they told her all the time she had bad blood. It's like, it's just, it, we talked about that in last week's podcast, how they told the black men they gave syphilis to that they had bad blood while they watched him die. Same thing with these kids. Like, it's just, it's terrible. Uh, they say that the mission and the purpose of this village uh, was involved from its origins in the 1800 and now exists to work in partnership with families to help society's most vulnerable children so that they become educationally proficient which means brainwashed in their system, economically, uh, economically productive and socially responsible members of their communities so they could be good slaves to these Rothschilds and whoever else runs these things. And the original charter for the school was drafted in 1850 after some initial fundraising difficulties. The school was opened and rented a building on January 10th, 1853. Early on, the asylum was able to house 400 students who received six hours of schooling a day, plus other types of instruction, such as vocational education. So they got six hours plus more education, it sounds like. The school also participated in the orphan train program between 1855 and 1903, placing 6,323 children with families throughout the Midwest, notably Illinois. In 
1854, Prosperity was purchased at, in Washington Heights. The property consisted of 23 acres and later expanded to 29. The campus had 1,200 beds, although it averaged 582 children per year between 1871 and 1879. That seems pretty high to me. Anyways, uh, so this is one of three. Let's talk about the next one that was involved in shipping off children across the globe. Now this nonprofit, this one was called Children's Aid. Okay, so we got the Children's Village. Now we have the Children's Aid, A-I-D. And they're saying that this one was founded in 1853 by this guy named Charles Lauren Brace, who again was a rich dude. Uh, but he happened to be a preacher. So you put the preacher in front of it and it makes him better, I guess. So he is the one that they're really putting the pat on the back for starting these orphan trains. It says, with the annual budget of over $100 million, 45 citywide sites, and over 1,200 full-time employees, Children Aid is one of America's oldest and largest children's nonprofits. Again, if this one organization has $100 million and is in 45 different states, why are there in, in any homeless children at all? That is my question. Why, are, why isn't this money going to the hands of the parents so they can raise their children? Why do they have to take the children to raise them is my question. And yes, I understand there's drug-ridden parents. There's, there's bad parents out there. I get it. But all in all, I don't think every, I don't think parents want to be bad. I, you know, poverty isn't, doesn't make you a bad person. Poverty is a circumstance. It's, and it's also one that's been put on to us by these people that run these agencies like the Children's Aid Society. And I'm sick and tired of it. Children's Aid helped tens of thousands of disadvantaged New York children succeed annually by providing comprehensive service, adoption, and foster care, after school and weekend programs, arts, and early childhood education. Got to get them early, guys. Uh, now they help with family support, medical, mental health, juvenile justice, legal advocacy, um, and developmental programs. So, you know, like I said, some of them offer good things. I'm not saying they're all bad, but let's just keep going. So this one, it started 1853. As I said before, it was founded by Yale college graduate and philanthropist Charles Loring Brace with a financial support from New York businessmen and other philanthropists. So as you see, it wasn't just him. It was other businessmen and other rich guys that made sure I, I'm, I'm interested why so many men are interested in all these children and their well-being. It's very interesting to me. Yet, they don't care about their parents and their well-being. They'd rather, you know, have them as forced laborers in their factories that keep them rich. So, it goes on. The story goes that he was just appalled by everything. And so, he went to go help and he started this orphanage. And, you know, being how he was such a caring and loving man, he thought, well... They're, these kids aren't going to do good here in this institutional care. So what, what I could do to help America is get these kids in the hands of the pioneers that could use help settling the, the American West. So he arranged, and God knows who he arranged this with, but obviously other politicians, to send orphan children to all the states, every single one except Arizona. Then that became known as what we are calling the orphan train movement. Of course, back then they didn't say, oh, the orphan trains are coming. It was... They had, you know, the Mercy Trains and all these other great little names. Um, the, the children, they encouraged them to completely break of the past. They would arrive in a town 
the people would look at them, inspect them, and select them. I, it was terrible. The program was controversial, and people didn't like it from the get-go, but it went on for 100 years because we know how that goes. I was looking to see if the Children's Aid Society has ever been sued, and apparently it's very hard to sue them because they're a government agency. But there is a clash class action lawsuit in Canada right now and I found this article I wanted well it's not an article it's a video I wanted to share with you all real quick about this class action lawsuit with this orphan train society that spread its tentacles across the globe ruling an Ontario Superior Court judge is allowing a Toronto teen to move forward with a two million dollar lawsuit against the Catholic Children's Aid Society She's alleging that the organization conducted a negligent investigation and placed her into an abusive home. None of the allegations have been proven in court. Joining us this morning with more is former foster child and now the executive director of 514, Lucas Medina. Good to have you back with us on your morning. Great, thanks. In our previous conversations, I've enjoyed your perspective both as somebody who was in the system and is now working on the outside to change the system. Right. So I'm interested to know what makes this ruling so significant. Well, you know, one of the, the you know the most significant aspects of this for me is that it shows you just how egregious a case has to be for uh, someone like this young woman to be able to go forward. Explain that. that for our viewers who may not be familiar. So, um, so in every other part of the country, um, the child welfare sector is delivered directly by the government. And in Ontario, the government has outsourced it to 47 uh, independent children's aid societies. And in order to empower them to work on behalf of the government um, in child protection without worry about liability, in order to do what they need to do to protect children, um, it's almost impossible to sue a, child, a children's aid society uh, for anything they do in, um, in good faith to protect a child. Now, um, on the other end of that, uh, you can sue a, a children's aid society if they don't act to protect a child. So, um, for example, there was one children's aid society that uh, a few years ago ran majorly over budget, and the Auditor General audited them and found out that in the three previous years before that financial year, um, there were three different family cases that they closed, and then within a few months, a parent in that family murdered the children. And, uh, and so they were liable for lawsuits for that. So what they ended up doing was they overcorrected, and they started apprehending children who were in situations that didn't warrant being apprehended because they can't be sued for that. In this case so. specifically, the teen's father succeeded in having the society's employee removed as the family's caseworker. But then a joint lawsuit he launched with his daughter seeking damages for defamation, legal costs, and more was dismissed. The judge found the only duty agencies have when investigating potential child, child abuse is to the child. So what do you make of this ruling? Well, you know, I find that ruling disturbing, uh, again, because this is a case, uh, this is a very clear case where um, uh, the evidence that the judge has agreed is pretty strong, it's strong enough to move forward with the, the girl's case, mm -hmm. um, is that the, the child protection worker acted in bad faith and uh, created documents in order to apprehend mm -hmm. this girl from her father. Mm -hmm. So if... Uh, you know, if her case is strong enough based on that, then it, it seems very unfair that a parent who has successfully proven that there was a malicious case against them um, is out all of the, the finances he had to put forward to fight that. And, you know, a lot of people who have their children taken away from them uh, don't have the resources to pay for lawyers to fight the system. You know, they're going against, you know, the Catholic Children's Aid Society, 
um, it's not a charity. You know, it, it's a, a child welfare, a professional child welfare agency contracted by the government of Ontario, um, funded by about $100 million a year of taxpayers' dollars, and they have a whole team of lawyers uh, fighting for them. So not always a fair fight. It's not a fair fight. And, uh, and it's even less fair moving forward because the Ford government in some of their, their cuts to legal aid access, one of the first cuts they made was reducing legal aid for parents fighting children's aid societies. This is an ongoing case. It will have a ripple effect throughout. Another article that's recent that I think should be shared, and um, it's the organization called SOS Children's Village. So again, I, it's a branch of this Children's Village original orphan train, Children's Village. And this one has its claws again all over the world. And according to this article dated June 7th, 2023, uh, there's an international probe confirms abuse, corruption at international charity. And it's saying that staff at the SOS Children's Village have abused children, forced some of them to have abortions, intimidated whistleblowers, and destroyed incriminating evidence, said on a 262-page report. Investigators appointed to look into the allegations identified issues in a string of countries across the world, including the irregular awarding of multi-million dollar contracts really wow the independent special commissions appointed in 2021 confirmed that serious allegations of incidents of child sexual and physical abuse have occurred in the ngos worldwide facilities it it is its report said there were numerous cases of pregnancies among children not just one you guys numerous cases of pregnancy among children and youth as consequences of sexual abuse due to sexual relations, said the report. As a result, some children were forced to have abortions, it added. Whistleblowers included the charity's own care staff paid a heavy price when they denounced the abuse, the report said. Many of them lost their homes and SOS families and livelihoods trying to protect children from harm. In effort to protect the organization, over the interests of a child, evidence was destroyed and incidents covered up. Wow. It goes on to say, the report blamed the patriarchal and the hierarchy organizational culture, which tolerated disregarding of children's rights, victim blaming, bullying, nepotism, cover-ups, and collusion at all levels of the organization. In one case, a now deceased donor was alleged to have sexually abused children between 2010 and 2014 in Nepal, having donated more than 900,000 euros to fund local facilities. The donor was granted access to them where he allegedly abused children. The, the report said the previous key leadership at the time also facilitated the travel of a boy victim from Nepal to Australia to visit the donor, the report added. So look at this. Little money and you get what you... Uh. I mean, I'm just trying to prove here, you guys, that these organizations started corrupt and they still are to this day, all these years later, just as corrupt. Nothing is new under the sun. We got one more foundation to talk about before we, we move on from who's actually found you know i want you guys to understand who's housing these children and who's funding these houses and who's sending these children off because it wasn't some you know we're trying to be nice act at all it was a biggest trafficking ring in i believe american history done legally through these philanthropists and 
Why are they not in jail? Why are they still running these organizations? Why do we have to do podcasts to share the real history of these orphan trains? Because they're hiding right under our noses. Last orphanage to come along was called the New York Foundling Hospital. And if you get it, found, L-I-N-G. They found these kids, foundling. It's ridiculous. Again, these spread across the world. I have lots of stories on these guys. Um, but they were there to help the kids too. Um, and they were supported by, again, wealthy donors and operated by professional staff. The three institutions developed a program that placed homeless orphans, abandoned city of the children who numbered uh, estimated 30,000 in New York City. Uh, if they had 30,000 abandoned children in New York City, why did they ship 30-some thousand to New York City? Does that make any sense to anybody? No. So I found this article. It's actually the Encyclopedia Britannica, Volume 10. And it says, Foundling Hospitals, originally institutions for reception of foundlings, and that's in quotes, i.e. children who have been abandoned or exposed and left for the public to find and save. The early history of such institutions is connected with the practice of infocide, and in Western Europe were social disorder and rife and famine or frequent occurrence. Exposure and extensive sales of children were necessary consequences. Against these evils, which were noticed by several councils, the church provided a rough system of relief, being the traffickers for you, children being deposited in marble shells at church doors. This is another thing. Like, can you imagine somebody kidnapping your kid and then just bringing it to this church and dropping it off? Because I don't see a lot of moms dropping their kids off at churches. I don't think there's that many hard up moms all of a sudden. No, I don't think so. But anyways, so the churches, they came, they, they came to help and they created these um, places. A lot of them were in Paris. I find Paris to be a very interesting place. There was a lady who uh, was supposedly the first woman film director. And she did this crazy film about pulling babies out of cabbage, the first Cabbage Patch Kids. If you look back on the history of all this stuff... You got the Cabbage Patch Kids where they pull the kid. They even, you know how they had, I don't know if you know this, but I'm going to tell you. They used to have these dolls. I don't think they're in business anymore, but they used to be called uh, American Beauty or American Girl. American Girl dolls. And they were real popular. And you could go to places like Denver, big cities, and they would have American Girl doll stores. And you could buy little outfits and do their hair and just spend thousands of dollars on a doll. Well, back in the day, they used to have the same thing with Cabbage Patch Kids. You could go to this place and pull a, watch this kid, this Cabbage Patch, be pulled out of a cabbage. It's disgusting, really. And the nurse would put a diaper on it and feed it. Like, I saw the whole commercial and I was just disgusted. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Um, you know, again, nothing new under the sun. We got the Cabbage Patch the American Girl dolls made in China. Um so we got the Cabbage Patch dolls. Then you think of like Oliver Twist movies. I think of Orphan Annie movies, like all the programming they were doing to make sure like we we knew this was normal. There's the big, mean, you know, drunk lady taking care of you at the foster home. You're fending for yourself. You got no food. Uh, there's the Orphan Annie. I mean, they have the orphans left and right. They're telling these kids stories in movies because that's what they love to do. And another thing, going back to the Cabbage Patch kids, they gave those kids a birth certificate, 
a name. I'm starting to wonder if those were correlated with real kids' names from the orphan trains as another mockery because they have the records. And it's funny because I've tried to get some of these records and you have to ask for them to be released from the universities that are holding them. In babies, legally in 1913, and they would even put stamps on the children's clothing. Even crazier than that, supposedly, the world's first narrative film, the first real movie ever, is called La Feu Chou, or The Cabbage Patch Fairy, from 1896. I need to start doing video podcasts as well because I need to show you guys what I'm sharing here. But this is a lady pulling babies out of the cabbage and throwing them on the ground like they're rag dolls. Some of them are dolls, but two of them are not. And they're just laying on the ground, kicking and flailing, and it's terrible. And I hate watching it. What's the 1900s version? There's some controversy on the film outside of the entire cabbage patch repopulation subject because... The director was a woman named Alice Guy, and later was named Alice Guy Boucher, which creepily is the same exact woman from the postcards. The 1896 film La Fée aux The Fairy of the Cabbages, is a lost film directed by Alice Guy, and so supposedly they recreated this film multiple times. You will see this happen with many lost films, and that's its own subject that there may be something else going on with all these early films and we're not really told about it. Quote, many films of the silent era have been lost. The Library of Congress estimates 75% of all silent films are lost forever. About 10,000 American silent films were produced, but only 2,700 of them still exist in some complete form. Have you ever heard of Alice Guy Boucher? The Lumières present the first public demonstration of their new invention, the cinématographe, the first reliable method to project motion pictures. Among those invited, a young secretary, she thought, why not use film to tell stories? Alice Guy writes, directs, and produces one of the first narrative films ever made. Alice is one of the first to utilize many film techniques, including close-ups, hand-tinted color, and synchronized sound. Alice founds her own company, where she directs and manages all aspects of production. Following a two-decade career comprised of a thousand films that she wrote, directed, or produced, Alice disappears from filmmaking. How could such an important figure in the birth of cinema not be known? Many original footages that were completely lost, and then they came in and just replaced the missing footage? Very strange. But the 1896 version of the Cabbage Patch Fairy had a completely different story, involving a honeymoon couple 
a farmer, pictures of babies glued to cardboard, and a live baby. We will cover this in detail later, but we only know of this because that's what the supposed Alice Gee character left us with. But how do we know? I mean, did you see the way she was treating those babies? The big question is, why is this the first idea for a movie? It's all very strange. And on top of that, this 1896 version is a lost film, so we don't even have the original. There are most likely many more. But arguably, this is the first movie ever made. Then she remakes this film twice with the 1900 and 1902 versions. Now the reason that we know there was an earlier lost film is because in 1922, the director Etienne Arnault wrote in his memoirs that Alice Guy, quote, was the first to have the idea of staging a dramatic scene in front of the cinematographic lens, end quote. The controversy started here because he supposedly, according to the mainstream narrative, wrote the wrong film. The film he was talking about, directed by Alice Guy, was not the Cabbage Patch Fairy, but another film, Le Méfait Dante de Vous, or The Misadventures of the Veal-Head, so Calf-Head, Baby Cows, what's with all this dark humor early film stuff? I mean, all of it is very eerie. These are the first films being made? This film is about a baby cow's head that escapes from a butcher's plate, and then somehow the head combines with the butcher to produce a hybrid human? Which, if you look it up, it will say it was directed by another director called Ferdinand Zecca. Now this gets deeper because these first movies were created by the oldest French film company in the world, the Gaumont or Gaumont Film Company, or the Society of Establishments. So the first films were done by production companies, but strangely many of their first films involve very macabre themes and it makes you question if any of this has to do with Alice Guy and the Cabbage Patch Kids. Well, I would say so. Because why would the first films be promoting the selling of babies? Well, they created this first Cabbage Patch Fairy movie in 1896 specifically for the Paris World Fair and the baby incubators. This movie is proof that the baby postcards are real. As we were looking into Alice Guy, we found a very fascinating page on this exact subject. And at first, it just came from clicking on a Google image and we were looking for older screenshots of the film. Come to find out that this page from three years ago was putting this all together as well. They're not necessarily promoting the orphan train stuff or anything, but this is a massive library of these old postcards and she connects it with Alice Guy then she translated them as well, so shout out to this page. But before we continue, I just wanted to make sure we were all on the same page that these are real postcards and what they are. Two really stuck out to me in this collection, because they made it clear that these postcards had to do with repopulation without any question. In this depiction, we can see that there are cabbage and rose seeds being mixed into a device that then produces babies in mass while the woman in the red dress catches the baby then they fall out of her dress and then on top of that she's holding the clock weight signifying changing time. There's another illustration that translates to 
repopulation tank or center, and we see a giant woman, the one in the dress, being the symbol for the Cabbage Patch Kids, generating many kids that go flying in the air as the man with the top hat begins pumping to fuel the operation. Then you can even see that they're maids to take care of them, and new people coming in to take home babies. Now many seem to think that somehow these could be photoshopped or fake in the sense that they were done in the modern day. Well, take a look at even more of these that were not in the first video. There are so many that it's mind-blowing. All of this was to promote the incubators that were happening at the World Fairs, which were, quote, a boutique of fully operational baby incubators filled with live, premature infants. Why premature? And why are they creating Art Nouveau posters? One done by Adolfo Hohenstein, which is not a postcard, but this is a poster from 1896, and you can see that there's a snake going around the stem, but also that there are babies being grown from the flower buds. There is no denying it. These Cabbage Patch references, these growing babies depictions found on these old postcards, real postcards, posters, and now the first film are all depicting babies being sold at incubators at the World's Fair. And we're not going to ask any questions? Is it not interesting that the first film, the first real movie that was not a short, was right out of this period of 1896. Are we possibly dealing with some strange remnants of this art and film that were a part of a transitional phase after the reset? Think about it. What if this footage of the Cabbage Patch Fairy is what was given to the orphans? Did you even make a film like that in 1896 when you're just discovering film for the first time? Seems more like some type of play on occult knowledge. As we see with many of these early films, as we see, the Odd Fellows are a huge part of a worldwide organization. Started way, way back. We think they say even back to the 11th century, so that's a long time ago. And then we move to the 1800s, where we're starting to see incubators being used in fairs. Now, next week, I'm going to get into the Chicago world fair where the incubators were first shown in the united states but originally they started in paris where this lady filmed this interesting cabbage patch um, movie and at the same time puts all these postcards out with crying basically little children saying kids for sale and in french and french so there's a lot of weird stuff going on in the late 1800s, early 1900s with trafficking children. It goes from these world fairs, these selling children there, to these orphanages being opened up across the United States and the world, to parents being put in insane asylums, to their children being sent across the globe to help these elite uh, philanthropists finish their railroads and get these farms going. So yeah, a little bit of reverse engineering and history is always a good time. So next week, we will talk about these fairs and these incubators. 
And I find it very interesting, their excuses for using these, especially in Chicago. Yeah, I got permission from a mom to take a baby across the ocean in a boat. And, you know, you can't use the incubator on the boat, so we just put them in hot water. Okay, well, if the hot water works, then why the hell do you have to bring them across the ocean and put them in an incubator for everybody to come? And not only that, guys. They didn't put them with the science projects. They put them with the farm animals and the sideshow freaks. Yeah, that's next week. And our history and how screwed up it really is. To end this week's episode, I want to read a couple testimonies from some orphan train riders from orphantraindepot.org. The first testimony I'm going to pick just at random is Charles Frederick. He was from Illinois and he was born in 1888. And here is his story. The little boy stepped off an orphan train in Rockford 105 years ago. He had no luggage, just clothes he wore. He spoke only German. Someone had pinned a card on his jacket. It said he was six years old and his name was Charles Frederick. Before the day was over, the boy would be loaded into a covered wagon with other children who had been shipped west from a crowded New York City orphanages. Frederick and his companions were headed to Durand, where they would be parceled out to farm families. The children were part of a social experiment called, quote-unquote, placing out, between 1853 and 1929. Trainloads of destitute and homeless children, as we stated, not all of them were homeless, as many as 200,000 in all, were transported from New York, Boston, and other cities on the eastern seacoast to cities and towns along the Burr-ongoing rail lines in America's Middle West and West. Eventually, large Midwest cities such as Chicago also established orphan trains in exchange for quote-unquote good homes. The The children, many of whom had been living on the streets, and eating from garbage cans were offered to farmers, housewives, and businessmen as indentured workers. Some children were lucky. They went to families that adopted them and treated them with love. For others, like Charles Frederick, the results were mixed. This Irish family took in my dad, Frank Franklin Frederick, 77, of Boat, Wisconsin, says he was just someone to work on the farm. Although the placing out program operated in the U.S. for about 75 years until it was rec- until recently, it was little known part of the history of American childhood. It wasn't until 1878 when the orphan train and fictional account of the first orphan train riders was published. That curiosity was about the system was about the system began. Now there's a national organization to help descendants of train riders find their roots. Nonfiction books have been written and organizations across the country line like Illinois Genealogical Society are gathering records about orphan train riders. Part of the fascination is because the children's stories are poignant. But more than that, the program is a reminder of how unsuccessful the nation has been in finding solutions to problems of childhood poverty. Now, I want to stop right here. This little boy, he didn't even know English. Can you imagine? His parents probably didn't either. They probably came over here knowing nothing and got bamboozled into this program. I can't even imagine what these parents went through. And then they probably got put in a freaking insane asylum because they probably went insane looking for their child. The orphan train program was discovered in 1929. 
not only because of criticism of placing out, but because of reforms of the child welfare system. Okay, so now we're going to get to Frederick's story finally. We had to get to all that first. Um, and that was some good information, so I wanted to read it. So this is called One Boy's Story. Franklin Frederick says his dad arrived on an orphan train in Rockford on September 6, 1888. Frederick said his father told him that he and the other children bound for Durand were picked up by a covered wagon by John Nelson Durand, a farmer. The, road, the roads were so rugged they had to stop overnight and stay at a station on a track bridge road. The next day they arrived in Durand where the different farmers picked them up. Frederick says his father went to the Linens, a family that had come from Ireland in the 1850s and farmed 160 acres north of Durand. The boys worked hard and had the chance to attend a one-room school off and on for four years. However, the Linens were not a warm family and his father never felt loved, Frederick says. When he was 17, Charles Frederick ran away. One evening, he threw his clothes out the window, his son says. He, was, he said he was going to go to the outhouse, but he never came back. Charles Frederick worked for farms around Sherland and Harrison and later came to Rockford, where he married in 1911. In 1913, he moved to a house in Loves Park, where he lived for 47 years. His first job was at Hess and Hopkins, a tannery. Later, he worked for Patterson Lumber Company for 21 years. Still later, he was a plant guard. He and his wife moved to California in 1960. He was 80 when he died in 1962. While some aspects of the orphan train program are appalling, it also offered a new start to a happier environment for many youngsters, the author Holt says. The next story I picked is of a woman. Her name is Anne Harrison. She was placed in Colorado in 1911, and this is Anne's story. Anne Harrison, Mabel Rubin, because they changed their names. When I was 26 years old, I learned that I had been adopted. Up to that time, I had taken for granted that I was the birth child of John Joseph and Anne Waters Gruel of Colorado Springs, Colorado. After several moves for my adopted mother's health, she died of tuberculosis in Tucson, Arizona when I was 11. My widowed father and I moved to Denver, Colorado, where I completed high school and I studied voice for several years. Finally, at 25, I was able to go east to Chicago and New York City to try to make a career for myself as a singer. Apparently, my adopted father had not planned for me to find out the truth, but he gave me a clue when I was about eight, which at the time meant nothing to me. While walking up Lexington Avenue in New York City one sunny day in 1935, I found myself in front of St. Business Farrier Catholic Church, and then that long buried clue floated to the surface of my mind. My father just once had mentioned that I had been baptized at St. Vincent Ferrer. Ringing the rectory bell, introducing myself to the priest who answered the door and requesting a baptismal certificate ended in a complete blank. No record of Mabel Girl, born February 16, 1909, could be found. Noting my disappointment, the priest suggested I try New York Founding Hospital NYFH, two blocks away on East 68th Street. Now, we all know that that's where the nuns would get the babies and they had the mercy trains on this founding hospital. He remarked that over the years, they had baptized many children there. I can 
covered those two blocks in record time. The nuns who greeted me acknowledged my being at the NYF, verified my birth date, stating my orphanage name was Mabel Ryan, and finally gave me a baptismal certificate dated February 27th, 1909, listing the girls as my parents. End of story. Closed book. Don't ever try to find out anything more. When I returned to Denver for a visit about four years later, unexpectedly, I renewed an acquaintance with a woman who had attended the first and second grade with me in Colorado Springs. She told me that she too had been adopted. She and I had been two of the five children who had been sent by train to five childless couples who were members of the St. Mary's Catholic Parish. She also told me my father threatened the end of friendships if anyone ever told me that I was adopted. Because my father was not well when I returned from New York, I never told him that I had found out. He died shortly thereafter. Periodically over the years, I questioned and fantasized, but I was too busy to let the puzzle take too large a place in my thinking. And there the matter rested until I opened the August 1986 issue of the Smithsonian Magazine with the article of the Orphan Train Movement and realized I was a part of it. I want to cry. <laughs> I don't know why I want to cry because she's not, the story isn't, I mean, it is sad to me, but, um, she's not writing it as if it's sad. So anyways, I'll continue on with the tears in my eyes. Research time. Initial inquiries to the NYFH were frustrating. After mailing the completed form plus $25 to research my records, I heard nothing for nine months. Later, I found out that they had simply filed my request under case completed. With the case reopened, I received a tidbit of information with an exchange of letters. Finally, I had the following data. I was born at the New York Infant Asylum. My mother was 19 at my birth and was born in Russia. My father was 21 and a native New Yorker. I sent this non-identifying information to Vital Records, New York Health Department, requesting a minted birth certificate. I included my adopted parents' name and mine as Mabel Ryan Grulu, G-R-U-E-L-E. I was unable to add more details to request for additional information. The record clerk included her phone number on the second request. I phoned immediately. After considerable cautions, conversations with that clerk and with her superior, the chief clerk, I was told that no records of adoption were in their files. Fortunately, I realized the implications. New York laws applying sealed records in cases of adoption did not apply to me. I requested copies of my original birth certificate. The clerk said putting it in writing and making your request very strong. This I did approximately five weeks later. On October 24, 1989, I received a copy of my original birth certificate with a few surprises. My name is Mabel Rubin. My mother's name was Jenny Rubin. 19, born in Russia. My father's name was Mo Cohen, 21, born in New York City. Father's address, 604 Eastern Parkway. Obviously, with names like that, my heritage had to be Jewish. Not to worry, I got the best of both testaments. Since acquiring this identifying information, I have been able to obtain the following data from NYFH. I was sent west by train and placed with the girls on January 19, 1911. Adopted January 7, 1912. Legal adoption finalized before Judge John E. Little at the court in El Paso County, Colorado. NYFH does not have any court papers on my adoption. 
They state that information they have was contained in my letters from my adoptive mother. None of those letters were kept. This must be so frustrating. Notes made from the letters are on microfilm. My daughter Judy was in New York City during April 1990 and was shown the microfilm pages when she visited NYFH. In spite of this and the fact that I have obtained my own identifying data, NYFH refuses to give me copies of the microfilm information or any material that might be in other files. It's beyond my understanding. My efforts to obtain my legal adoption from El Paso County, Colorado is also lagging. I believe there's a tendency among court clerks to put such requests on the bottom of the in basket without any urgency to move it to the out basket. Other, other unanswered questions that keep me searching. What happened to my birth mother? Did she later marry my father? I'm a romantic or some other man. I was her first child. Did she have other children who would be my younger half siblings? The same questions about my birth father and what age or year did my mother immigrate to America? I have received a copy of the court for my adoption from El Paso County Court, Colorado Springs, Colorado, signed by Judge John E. Little. It arrived on February 12, 1991, just four days before my 82nd birthday. There was a discrepancy. The decree was signed on December 28, 1911, rather than January 7, 1912 as reported by NYFH. Also attached to the decree was a casual, informal note to my adopted father. It said in part, We will be pleased to allow you to legally adopt the baby. I was two and a half at the time. Signed by Sister Teresa Vincent, 17, oh, sorry guys, 175, so it's 175 E68 Street, New York City. The note did not mention my name, nor was the NYFH letterhead used. When I started to search back in 1986, I had no idea where other train riders were doing the same thing. It wasn't until 1988 when a friend of from Maron, Ohio, sent me an article from the Midwest Living Magazine telling me about the Nebraska train riders that I learned about, the OTHSA. Joining the OTHSA... And I think that's the Orphan Train Historic something uh, association. I feel that I acquired a whole new family of very unique people. One of our members has said that being an orphan means being a survivor. Regardless of why our parents gave us up, we might remember that they, they too were trying to survive. Perhaps they gave us the genetic material for our own survivorship. For some, the demand was greater than for others. As I met them and I listened to their stories, I'm proud of all of us. Apparently, I was the only girl named Mabel, born on February 16, 1909, at the New York Infants Asylum by Mabel Rubin slash Ann Harrison. Well, guys, I think we found the answers to where they got all these orphans for these MK Ultra projects, and it's been a heartbreaking journey to find out. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about these uh, doctors that started uh, the incubators and these world fairs. I'm not saying incubators are bad. We still use them, but uh, why, why, did, why were there premature babies back then? Uh, you know, and I'm glad they tried to save lives. You know, we'll talk about it. Anyways, I hope you guys all have a good night. It's been a uh, long podcast with a lot of things we covered. So may you have ears to hear it. In Jesus' 
holy and precious name, we lift up all the feelings we have to you right now. We just lift up all these children that have ever been trafficked from the early 1800s. God, this has happened for so long. And we just ask that it stops. We just ask that it stops once and for all, Lord, we just take down these Illuminati, these new world order, these, these people that are hide in their secret societies, expose them to the light and let them no longer be in control of the system that we're living in because you are the God, you control all things. You are the only God. You are the God. You are the God of gods, the King of Kings. And I just praise you and I thank you. And I just ask, Lord, that you give everybody peace. And if there's anybody out there listening that this might have helped them figure out a part of their past, may you help their journey to find those missing pieces. In Jesus' name, amen.